0: From the very beginning there have always been two competing houses of israel both called both adopted both privileged both blessed both enlightened both anointed but the two are very different now a house is something that is created constructed and organised. It's an establishment when something resides. The name house can be applied to the church of God as a whole. As Peter says he also are lively stones and built up a spiritual house what can apply to individuals? As we read in Matthew 1243 43-44, when Jesus said, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And also 2 Corinthians 5, 1-2, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Now, in the scriptures, the name Israel refers to three different things. First, it's a name given to the patriarch Jacob, it is subsequently used to refer to Jacob's descendants, the people of God, as a whole, both literally and spiritually. So the expression House of Israel applies both to individuals and in a corporate sense. Now if we look at the meaning of the word Israel, in the expression House of Israel, we discover that it can mean either to prevail with God, or, as also given in Mickelson's Hebrew Dictionary, to rule as God. And we note that one meaning denotes an action directed upwards towards God and the other denotes an action directed downward as if from God. Now looking at the corporate house of Israel we find that almost throughout its entire history it has been divided. There have been two competing establishments in her, two houses vying for control, one that prevails with God and the other that seeks to rule as God even before time began when the morning stars sang together we find among the holy angels that there were two houses of Israel one started with the first of the covering cherubs who was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty the highest of all created things who being self deceived thought that his ideas were better than God's and promised the angels a greater good a higher and more excellent liberty than what God had given them. Lucifer's house was founded on selfishness, pride and self-confidence which were opposing principles to the self-denying love of God. Therefore, Lucifer could not establish his house without first subverting the house of God and ruling in the place of God. Being a popular, talented and much admired leader, he managed to deceive one third of the angels. The loyal angels were astonished and saddened at how easily the others were misled and contended with them to come to their senses. But they did not force them to submit, but rather they appealed to God. As we read in Jude 1 verse 9, Michael the archangel went contending with the devil, Durst not bring against him a railing accusation but said the Lord rebuked thee. In contrast Lucifer planned to violently overthrow the loyal angels and force his control over the house of God. As we read in Revelation 12, 7-9, and there was war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there any place found anymore in heaven, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You see, Lucifer wanted to rule as God, but could not prevail with God. Having lost heaven, he and his angels lamented the consequence of the actions that had led them to that point. They longed to be restored to heaven, and pleaded for forgiveness. Read in Spirit Prophecy, Volume 1, page 29, Satan trembled as he viewed his work. He was alone in meditation upon the past, the present and his future plans. His mighty frame shook as with a tempest. An angel from heaven was passing. He called him and entreated an interview with Christ. This was granted him. He then related to the Son of God that he repented of his rebellion and wished again the favour of God. He was willing to take the place that God had previously assigned him and be under his wise command. Christ wept at Satan's woe but told him as the mind of God that he could never be received into heaven. Heaven must not be placed in jeopardy. His sense of failure overwhelmed him. He was grieved over being denied his dreams and over the sense of guilt which was now forced upon him and the loss of the privileges heaven that he had sustained. It seemed too much to be borne. His sorrow was real, but his repentance was not genuine. He was not sorry about what he had done, nor over his selfishness and pride, but only about the wretchedness that he now felt due to its consequences. He would not accept... That he could not be forgiven. He was angry that his place in heaven had been taken from him and given to another. He was determined to change the conditions of forgiveness and so regain his position in heaven by any means possible. And so read in Revelation 12:12 12, 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath. Lucifer presumed that if he could deceive Adam and Eve also, God might make some means to pardon them, and that he and his fallen angels would be able to exploit this and so be forgiven and reinstated to heaven. If not... Then he would unite with man in rebellion against God to forcibly take possession of Eden and make it into another heaven for himself and his angels where he could rule as God. Either way, the condition of repentance was defeated. Lucifer miscalculated in the light of Adam's repentance and pardon. Satan now tried to promote his design that repentance should not be a condition for forgiveness. Ever since, he has worked to fill Israel with those like himself that seek to enter heaven without true repentance, knowing that a house divided against itself cannot stand. While being in Israel, those that shun repentance stand under Satan's banner just as surely as the heathen are in open rebellion against God. Now when God created man, he intended to dwell among him, to make them his habitation, his house. Yet no sooner had God planted man in the earth that two houses again arose within Israel. The first house under the patronage of Cain and the other under Abel. Both had grown up together before the gates of Eden, worshipping God. Both were keepers of the Sabbath day. Both had angels for their teachers and God himself condescended to communicate with them. By all respects they were equal members of Israel. But one belonged to a house of repentant sinners and the other to those that seek heaven without repentance. One was a house that prevails with God, the other that seeks to rule over others as if God. Both wished to enjoy God's blessings. Both were normally sons of God, but while Abel saw justice and mercy in God's requirement that man give evidence of his repentance before he could be restored to Eden and gratefully accepted the hope of redemption, Abel was happy to comply with God's requirements, but Cain had other ideas. His mind was worked by Satan, Cain had no need for repentance. He cherished feelings of rebellion and murmured against God because of the consequences of sin. In his self-righteousness, he questioned the divine justice and authority. When God refused his offering, Cain became very wroth that Abel should prevail with God and be accepted before him. As the firstborn, Cain felt that he had a God-given right to rule over him and so Cain talked with Abel, his brother, to subvert him. When this did not work, Cain resorted to force and slew him. It is no coincidence that the word Cain, the name Cain means a lance, a tool for breaking through. While the name Abel means something that is transitory and unsatisfactory. Here we see a primary characteristic of the two houses of Israel, one that seeks to rule, and the other an unresistant martyr. One powerful and respected, the other meek and deplorable. One to be forever cast out into everlasting darkness, the other to receive a crown of glory. This basic story is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. We have Ishmael, the firstborn, and Isaac, both children of Abraham. Then we have Esau and Jacob. Esau was admired by his father as an accomplished and cunning hunter, a daring and vigorous man, while Jacob was what you might call a nerdy man, admired by his mother. Esau was a natural leader who later had 400 men of war under his command, a powerful man to be respected. Jacob, on the other hand, was a plain, ordinary man followed around by a bunch of sheep, the attendants, some women and children. The name Esau comes from the word orsau, which means to do or to make, to accomplish, to advance, to appoint. The name Jacob means a supplanter, someone that schemes on how to take the place of another. As the firstborn, Esau felt so sure of himself and his birthright that he disregarded those of God's requirements that he considered insignificant, and in so doing grieved his parents by taking Canaanite wives. Esau cared more for the material blessings granted him by the birthright than by its spiritual obligations. He saw those obligations as an unwelcome restraint and rashly bartered away the spiritual blessings for the things of this world. On the other hand, Jacob craved the spiritual blessings of the birthright promised to him by the angel at his birth above everything else and obsessively sought how to obtain it. Are you obsessively seeking to obtain that birthright? Or do you feel confident that it's yours? When the time came for the blessing to be given, Esau complied with its external requirements. He believed that the blessing was his to accept, but nevertheless he obeyed his father's request to bring him savoury meat. He did not come empty-handed, thinking, all I have to do is believe, that the blessing is mine. It did not come without the shedding of blood. He brought the offering. He relied on the blood of the sacrifice to gain for him the blessing. But he did so without repentance in his heart. When he discovered that the blessing had been taken from him and given to Jacob, as the angel had foretold, he cried with a great and exceedingly bitter cry, and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. This will be the cry of many in the last day, when they discover that they also have failed of obtaining the pardon for their sins. Seeing the redeemed, the lost will cry out, Forgive me, even me also, O my father. They presume that God's forgiveness was theirs, and all they had to do was believe and accept, and thus be freed from the consequences of their sins. They may seek to cover their faults by various offerings and devotions, but having set aside the need for inward repentance, their compliance with God's requirements is no better than Esau's plate of savoury meat. And Paul tells us in Hebrew 12.17 For you know that how afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Just as Cain had killed his brother, having now lost the blessing to Jacob, Esau hated him and determined to set out with a large force to hunt him down and kill him and violently take the blessing from him. On the other hand, Jacob hoped to receive the blessing, but the blessing was not rightfully his, and his ability to obtain it was not clear. His flawed attempts at getting the blessing only led him to despair of ever receiving it. But after many long years, his determination led him to wrestle with God in deep repentance, until he finally prevailed with God and obtained the blessing when he was about 100 years of age. Because of their many faults, many like Jacob may despair at times of obtaining God's blessing. If they are determined as he was to obtain it and wrestle with God in deep repentance until they have obtained it, the victory will be theirs. Now the time came... When Israel wanted to be like all the nations round about them. They cried to Samuel, make us a king. To gratify the people God chose for them, Saul, who came from a respectable family. He was a man of courage, yet he was modest and charitable. He was an admirable person, such as there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he, from his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people in addition to all of this God endowed him with the Holy Spirit as we read in 1 Samuel 10 6 11 to 12 the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee and thou shalt be turned into another man so that he prophesied among the people and it became a proverb is saw also among the prophets he was born again The name Saul means one desired or asked for. As Samuel's first king, Saul's house had a good reputation and was highly respected among the people. Yet not long after, his position was taken from him and given to another. God anointed a second house in Israel, that of David, a simple shepherd boy. David's reputation was not so good. He was a fugitive from the authorities. His followers included the distressed, those unwilling or unable to pay back their debts, and those discontented with society. He undermined King Saul's authority, even joining forces with the Philistines, who were Saul's enemies for a time. Later, becoming king himself, he had one of his most loyal and bravest servants, Uriah the Hittite, murdered so he could steal his wife. David's own sons were treacherous. Incest and murder were not strangers to his household. While well, David also had some good qualities, such as having killed Goliath and written Psalms, his house lacked respectability, had a questionable character, and there was much to criticize about him. And we read in 2 Samuel 16 7, 8, and thus said Shimei when he cursed, Thou bloody man, thou man of Belial. The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord hath delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. And behold, thou art taken in thy mischief because thou art a bloody man. Who would you have preferred to have as a neighbor? The upstanding Saul or David? Who would you prefer to have as a leader? Most certainly we would choose the house of Saul. In all appearances Saul was a Christian man to be admired. But God said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 What was the difference beneath the exterior of these two that made one repulsive to God and the other accepted? Considering that the sins of Saul and those of David, we see that they are actually commensurate. The difference was not in the magnitude of their sins, but in the spirit within their hearts. David's name means loving and comes from a root, meaning to boil. He loved and felt his need of God, while Saul was self-satisfied and lukewarm. Saul was self-deceived and self-righteous. He served God as it was convenient for him, for his own benefit. He placed his own ideas above God's requirements and had no need for repentance. We can clearly see this from two experiences in his life. Samuel had asked Saul to wait seven days for him to come and perform a burnt offering. Samuel was delayed, and to stop the army from deserting him, Saul became impatient and offered the burnt offering in violation of God's command. And just as soon as he had done that, Samuel came and said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilead, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said unto Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. 1 Samuel 13.8-13 He see Saul with blood still on his hands, knowing that he had broken his word to Samuel and disregarded God's prohibition regarding the offering of sacrifices, justifying himself as if he had done nothing wrong. Later, God gave Saul another test, see what was in his heart and asked him to utterly destroy the Amalekites and their livestock because of their iniquity. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, that they utterly destroyed, 1 Samuel 15.9. Now, it was a heathen custom for a victor in war to parade a defeated king in his victory celebration. Often the victor would heighten his honour by magnanimously sparing the life of the defeated enemy. Lucifer saw in Agag a representation of himself with the sentence of death hanging above him. Standing before the king of kings. In leading Saul to pardon Agag, Lucifer sought to overturn God's judgment. If Saul was merciful enough to spare this unrepentant Agag, why could not God pardon him? Through Saul, Lucifer wanted to establish the principle that repentance should not be necessary to obtain forgiveness and that requiring it is unjust and unmerciful. Lucifer wants us to think that his love for us surpasses the love of God, that his tolerance surpasses God's forbearance, that his mercy surpasses God's mercy, all the while seeking to malign God's character. To further his deception, Lucifer has sneakily changed the modern meaning of the word forgive. In 1828 Webster's dictionary gave its definition as to pardon, to remit as an offence or a debt, to overlook an offence and to treat the offender as not guilty. The original and proper phase is to forgive the offence, to send it away to reject it, that is not to impute it but to not to put it to the offender. If we look at the Greek word that the Bible translates as forgive, it means to send away, which aligns with Webster's definition. To forgive means to put away, to acquit, to let go an offence, to erase it from the record. To forgive someone is to treat them as if they had never sinned. Jeremiah 31, 34 Seth the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. However, in today's Newspeak, forgiveness is now all about you and how you feel. It's not about offences or their consequences. The modern definition of forgive is to, quote, cease to feel resentment against an offender, end quote. When God forgives, he does not change his feeling towards the sinner. He takes away the sin. Satan wants the opposite. He wants to keep the sin, but change our feelings towards it. If we are supposed to reflect the character of Christ, we are to forgive as Christ forgives, not as Satan wants us to forgive. Satan wants us to forgive others in the same manner, and the same extent that he wants to be forgiven. Shall we defeat God's justice and mercy by supporting Satan's claim that the unrepentant should be forgiven? The Word of God nowhere tells us that the unrepentant are to be forgiven, but rather that we are to forgive our brethren even when they repent. We are to forgive others in the same way that God forgives us. God does not forgive those that do not repent, but He still loves them and He does not withhold from them that which is good likewise while we cannot forgive those that will not repent God tells us not to cherish our grievances but to love them and have a spirit of compassion towards them Matthew 544 to 45 but I say unto you love your enemies bless them that curse you do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your father which is in heaven For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And Romans twelve twenty, therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him; if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. It is the love and goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance, that their sins might be forgiven. We who claim to be Christ's representatives ought to do likewise. How can the redemption of man be achieved if sinners were just forgiven without repentance? Imagine what would result if murderers, thieves, violent criminals, and rapists were forgiven without repentance. Imagine pedophiles teaching in primary schools, imagine gangsters running the banks. Imagine tyrants in government. Imagine cold-blooded murderers working in the pharmaceutical industry. Grifters in religious organisations. We can see the result of this everywhere. Satan's dream of creating heaven for himself on earth is rapidly being fulfilled. To forgive unrepentant sinners is to undermine the whole plan of redemption and establish the principles of Lucifer. Is this what, really what God desires, that we assist Satan by promoting his sophistry? Today, the critical focus in the definition of to forgive is no longer on the offence, much less on the offender, but on the offended. By confusing us about what it means to forgive, Satan can shift the guilt from the offender to the offended. Today, those who unintentionally harm an attacker in self-defence are charged with assault and battery. Those who protect innocent children from sexual predators are guilty of hate crimes. Those who refuse to ingest poison are called dangers to public health. In today's view, God is unjust for protecting the host of heaven in expelling Lucifer and depriving him of his angelic rights. Now Saul... After virtue signalling that he was more magnanimous than God by sparing the wicked Agag and selfishly keeping what he wanted for himself and the people turned to Samuel and sanctimoniously declared Blessed be thou of the Lord I have performed the commandment of the Lord And Samuel said unto him What meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul justified himself under the guise of religious piety saying, The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. Samuel replied, Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yes! I obey. There are many today in the house of Israel that, like Saul, also obey the word of God in part. They think they can make up their neglect with pious religious practices in place of repentance and believe that God will accept them. Samuel replied. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. First Samuel 15, that was verses 13 to 23. I was quoting from. At this point, Saul, like Lucifer, acknowledged his guilt and begged to be forgiven. He said, in verses 24, 25. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned; for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. But Saul was not sorry for what he had done. He just wanted to maintain his authority and retain popular support. He wanted God to endorse his course of action and use that endorsement to strengthen his own authority. Samuel rebuked Saul. And in what many today would characterise as an unforgiving and intolerant spirit, vindicated the honour of God by hewing Agag into pieces. When Saul discovered that the kingdom had been taken from him and given to David, he, like Cain and Esau, became very wroth, 1 Samuel 18:8. and refused to yield to God's authority. Saul determined to maintain his authority by force, and unrelentingly sought to kill David so that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, 2 Samuel 3.1. So while Saul's house was that of those who were respectable, charitable and tolerant, they presumed to benefit from God's mercy and claimed to exemplify it by forgiving those that God has not forgiven Yet, at the same time, they condemn those that God has not condemned. How is it that those that virtue signal their tolerance and forgiveness are the most intolerant and most unforgiving of others who have done them no wrong? In contrast, David's house, one of poor reputation, serious mistakes, intolerance, and being judgmental. David had been unforgiving toward Abigail's husband nor did he forgive Joab's murders nor the cursing of Shimei the son of Gera in spite of this David only did them good likewise even while having the power to do so David never harmed Saul in any way David did not try to assert his god-given authority he used no force to establish his kingdom but waited and pleaded for God's word to be fulfilled in its own time and way. David had a meek and repentant heart. He knew his failings and his need of God's continual help. When he was confronted with his faults, he freely confessed them. He understood that repentance is not the work of a moment, but of a lifetime. And his entire lifetime was one of repentance. David wrote... Show me thy ways, O God. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach in his way. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalms 25 verses 4 to 5, 9 and 11. Psalm 51.3, For I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Psalm 32, 32.5-6, I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee, in a time when thou mayest be found. Psalm 55, 55.17, Evening and morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and thou shalt hear my voice. In Psalms 19.12-13, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me thou from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumption sins, let them have no dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and shall be innocent from the great transgression. David's house is one of repentant sinners. It seeks God's help to overcome self. Saul's house is one of self-righteous virtual signaling. It seeks God's help to overcome others. David hated the enemies of God, did not forgive the unrepentant, yet he did good to those that did him evil. Saul, on the other hand, tolerated the enemies of God and forgave the unrepentant, yet did evil to those that did him good. David's house prevailed with God and obtained a blessing. Saul's house desired to rule as God and was cast out. Now the division in the house of Israel was put away for a time after the death of Saul. But after Solomon, Israel again became divided into two houses. Ten of the tribes of the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria and the other two tribes with its capital in Jerusalem. These two houses of Israel repeated the same characteristics. One was self-righteous, unrepentant and while persecuting the pure in heart tolerated unbridled wickedness as that of Jezebel until it was cast out of the promised land forever. The other was not always perfect with God. It had many faults but they accepted God's rebuke and endured his chastisements and repented from time to time of their backsliding and the history continued up until we come to the time of the New Testament you see Jesus did not have a good reputation his birth was dubious he was unorthodox and ignored the religious customs his followers were the outcasts and the poor few leading men believed in him He lived a humble life of poverty as a servant. He ate with publicans and sinners. He disregarded and was critical of the esteemed religious and national leaders. His public ministry was unauthorised and he was constantly getting in trouble with the authorities. They accused him of being demon-possessed, of being in league with the devil, of being a blasphemer. The authorities wanted him arrested and his supporters were persecuted. It was just not respectable to be associated with Jesus. By contrast, in the minds of the people, and by any of today's standards, the religious leaders of the day were learned, pious, generous, and good men. They were prosperous, upstanding members of the church. They stood as God's duly appointed authority before the people sitting in Moses' seat. They were highly respected and loved the praise of men. They felt confident of their standing with God. They claimed that with their leading and observance of their traditions, the church would obtain a greater good, a more glorious liberty, without the need for true repentance. When Jesus came preaching the gospel of repentance, they keenly felt their authority threatened by Christ. Who said of them, Except your righteousness, shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The rulers were therefore jealous of him and said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. They declared that Christ was teaching error and should not be heard, saying that his teaching would ruin the Jewish church. If we let him thus alone, the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And so to maintain their authority, they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. Why did Jesus do this? If salvation only requires acceptance of God's forgiveness without repentance, what was the point of exposing their sins of gaining the hatred? Jesus could have just come to grant all those that wanted the loaves and fishes unconditional entry into the kingdom of heaven. Alternatively, he could have just come to rule over them with irresistible divine authority. But instead, he came to plead with God on their behalf and to convince them of their faults and of their need for repentance. Christ's mission would have been a lot easier if he had omitted from the gospel the bit about repenting. Just believe and accept. Imagine how popular he would have been. Jesus, however, made it clear that repentance is a precondition for obtaining forgiveness and that the amount of forgiveness that can be obtained is limited by the amount of repentance that is offered. Luke 173 3-4, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day... And seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Those seven times. There's no blanket forgiveness that covers all of your future faults, unlike what is commonly taught by many who claim to represent Christ. Now, as I said at the beginning, there is another house of Israel. Because within the temple of the soul, There are also two houses striving for the mastery. The first house is that of the old man of the flesh. The other is the new man of the spirit. Both want to enjoy God's blessings. Both are created by God. Both want to enter into heaven. But the old man wants forgiveness without repentance. Repentance. The old man wants to rule over the will as his birthright being the firstborn. The new man instead pleads with God to surrender the will. Now the flesh lusteth against the spirit and these are contrary one to another. So that as he that was born after the flesh persecutes him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Since the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither can be. And as Luke 20, 20 to 21 tells us, the old man will feign himself. That means to act, to deceive. Will feign himself a just man, saying, Lord, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly that he may deliver the new man unto the power and authority of the flesh the old man wants to convince you that he is good and that the new man is not required so that he can take the place of the new man in the soul yet while the old man like Felix trembles at the word he's moved by the preaching of the word he will not do it choosing to serve God instead it is convenient for him and saying to himself, as we read in Ecclesiastes 7:16, "Be not righteous overmuch; neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldst thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked; neither be thou foolish. Why shouldst thou die before thy time?" Don't get too carried away with repenting. A little bit's enough. You've repented once. That's fine. Don't don't try to be too righteous. On the other hand, the new man recognises that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He seeks to decrease rather than to increase. To glory in his infirmity that God's strength may be made perfect in his weakness. To prevail in pleading with God rather than to rule as God. The new man longs for repentance, that forgiveness may abound. Now, because there are those within God's church that are carnal, and others that are spiritual, there are two houses of Israel in the church today. Romans 9 6 says, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. The constituents of one house are admired. As being respectable Christians, they speak smooth things. They are popular and love the highest positions in the church. They seek to wear soft clothing and sit in king's houses. They love to have preeminence and to exercise authority upon others. They draw men to themselves rather than to Christ. They are those of whom Christ warned, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you for so did their fathers to the false prophets. They wish to avoid the consequences of sin without repentance. They teach that forgiveness is unconditional and only needs to be accepted. Their belief is not faith but presumption. They exercise their authority to shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for they neither go in themselves, neither do they suffer those that are entering to go into These are they that have received the grace of God in vain, 2 Corinthians 6.1. They seem to be religious, but deceiveth their own heart, James 1.26. And Revelation 2.9 says of them, They say they are Jews of the house of Israel, but they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. They are to be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon sand, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the full of it to whom Jesus will profess I never knew you, depart from me ye that work iniquity Jesus says to them in Amos 5 2-23 to those in his church though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings I will not accept them just as he didn't accept canes, and he didn't accept Saul's. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy violence. The other house, considering themselves to be the chief of sinners, of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. They do not seek authority over their brethren, But a meek and poor in spirit, who rather striving for positions and honour deny self to imitate Christ and to make themselves of no reputation like him who humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant. This house is unpopular, it is reviled, persecuted, and all manner of evil is falsely spoken against them. They do not come before God demanding unconditional forgiveness. They do not seek God to avoid the consequences of their sins, but come to Him and plead with Him to overcome their own weaknesses. Aware of their failings, their confidence is not in any entitlement they may claim, but solely on God's grace. Unlike the first house that protests, "Lord, Lord, when saw we thee hungered or thirst, or stranger or naked or sick and prison, and did not minister unto thee?" This house says, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? And the king shall answer them, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, there have always been two houses in Israel because both grow together until the harvest, Matthew 13.30 when before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Whose goats? Somebody else's goats? No. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Matthew 25, 33 The basic characteristics of these two houses have always been exactly the same. Both houses seek God's mercy. Both desire forgiveness. Both are called. Both are adopted. Both are privileged. Both are blessed. Both are enlightened. But the two are very different. One house is motivated by self-denying love for God. The other by self-interest self-love and self-idolatry. One house seeks to be used by God for his purposes. The other seeks to use God for their own purposes. One house is despised and rejected. The other is respected and popular. One house is that of humble servants. The other that of polished leaders. One house is nourished by the spirit. The other is nourished by the flesh. One house seeks to alarm guilty sinners. The other seeks to comfort them. One house is full of penitent confessions. The other of self righteous virtue signaling. One house detests and separates itself from sin. The other compromises with and embraces sin. One house seeks to overcome sin. The other seeks to avoid its consequences while continuing in it. One house seeks repentance to obtain forgiveness. The other seeks forgiveness without repentance. One house wants all to come to repentance and gladly forgives the repentant. The other wants all to come to self-approbation and gleefully forgives the unrepentant. One house upholds God's justice and mercy. The other upholds Lucifer's complaint against God. One house does good to those that do it evil. The other does evil to those That do it good. One house seeks to convince others by pleading. The other seeks to compel them by force. One house seeks God to rule over self. The other seeks self to rule as God. One house is built on the rock of God's Word the other on the sand of human theories. One house prevails in obtaining the blessing, the other house is cast out into utter darkness. Which house are you in?